now, our feature presentation. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Florida Sound Archive Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser, and this is the first new episode of 2024. So welcome in, you're in for a treat, because for today's interview, I have with me Gino Royd from South Florida hardcore punk thrash band, The Royds. Hey Gino, welcome in. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Very cool to be on this side of the mic. It's great to have you. Did you think in 2024 you would be even talking about the roids? Uh, 2024, back when the roids was going on, if you just said I was even still alive, I would have been like, oh, you're crazy. Um, no, it, it's weird. It's weird to even think about it back then. You know, we were like teenagers. And uh, all these years later, I mean, it doesn't come up as much. You know, if you continue doing bands, you end up talking about those bands. But, People do bring up the roids. I run into people that are out and about people, you know, even, you know, in Canada and places. And they're like, oh, yeah, oh, I heard you were in the roids. I'm like, how the hell would you have ever heard of the roids? <laughs> but it's still a thing. You know, people still talk about it. You know, we have a weird successive history of things that happen that, you know, keep us from kind of talking about it so much. But uh, I'm, I'm hoping we can, you know, use this opportunity to, to square up some stuff and, you know, make clear who's on what page and all that. And I appreciate the opportunity for uh, letting us do that or let me do that. I'm, I guess I'm the only one today. So. <laughs> you are the one that's here and I'm definitely looking forward to hearing the story. So let's kind of go back to the very beginning. Talk about your early years. Where'd you grow up? I was born in Ohio, but I lived there as a little kid. I moved to West Palm beach in 75, I think you know, a little kid and uh, spent 30 some odd years in Florida from there. And, you know, I think uh, the band thing didn't really kick in until about 85. So I was there for about 10 years, just, you know, going to school, you know, get in trouble, whatever, until that point. And, Where'd you uh, go to school? Um, well, I went to Twin Lakes High School in Palm Beach County, which is the infamous downtown school, the one right by the beach. That's where Burt Reynolds went to school. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's his alma mater per high school or whatever. And it's the same one that I, I, I took interviewed the believers. All those guys went to that school as well. When you think back to the days in high school, what were you listening to back then? Um, well, punk rock hadn't really kind of taken over yet. That was probably a year or two behind me. Um, I was into all the hard rock shit that was going on then, you know, with your Def Leppard and, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, all that stuff was huge in the early 80s. I was into all that stuff. I still am. I love all that. Um, and uh, there were a couple kids that were coming up behind me that had a different look about them. And they were apparently listening to something a little bit different. And uh, me being like listening to everything, I was just like, I got to check this out as well. And that's when I discovered some of the punk rock stuff. And obviously some of the names like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all that you were already well aware of, but the more underground American thing, which to me was completely different than that. Uh, I found that super interesting. And I always thought that it would be very cool 
to be in a band. I had no musical experience. And that just discovering that was like a, a light went off. It's like, oh, I can do this easily. And that was just, you know, seeing those guys doing their thing. And I was like, shit, man, I'm going to do that. And it, after from there, it just took off. What kind of influence did your family have on you musically? Um, my mom was always super supportive. Um, you know, I, my dad wasn't around. He was living up in Ohio at the time. Uh, and my stepfather, he was, you know, he was pretty liberal and allowed whatever, you know, we could come down and set up music in the you know front room and have a good time if they weren't around. Uh, and we did that a lot. That was, I mean, that helped out tremendously in the early years because I mean, who's got money to run a rehearsal space. So they were fine with it. My mom appreciated music and all that stuff. Maybe she didn't like so much that we were, you know, drinking or smoking weed or whatever. <laughs> you know, we tried to keep that you know as low as possible. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember about your about one of your first concerts you ever attended? Uh, let's see. Well, I remember um, we were first aware of concerts going on at the old West Palm Beach Auditorium, and we'd seen some of the older kids. You know, they were wearing a concert church or whatever, and they were showing up. And you know, Black Sabbath. So I got to, I got to go see Black Sabbath, or I got to go see you know whoever Blue Oyster called. And uh, the first one that I was allowed to go to was ACDC back in Black Tour at the West Palm Beach Auditorium, which that shit blew my mind. I was like, holy fuck, this is exactly what I'm after here. So from that point, I I must have gone to every single concert for the next five years. Everything they booked between West Palm Beach and Lauderdale, I was at as much of that as I could get to. If I could get a ride to it, I was there. Yeah, I imagine that would be a big part, just getting the right transportation to some of those different concerts. At what point did you get further south to like Miami? They didn't have a bunch of venues that would do large shows. I mean, the Further south, I would have to venture would be Hollywood, which the old Sportatorium was down there. And that's where all the big, you know, if it was too big for the auditorium, it was at the Sportatorium. And that's all the Miami kids went to that. And I didn't make it down to the Cameo Theater until shit, maybe 84, 85. Um, that was right after discovering punk rock. And then I knew that's where, you know, the kids would make great caravan to go down and see whoever Dead Kennedys or Black Flag. Um who the first band I saw down there was might've been GBH. And at the time I didn't even know who they were. I know that saw them and it was, it was mind blowing. So sure. Yeah. And you mentioned the Hollywood sportatorium. Do you see any good shows there? Uh, I saw tons of stuff there. I saw all the big stuff of the time, you know, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, uh, Alice Cooper kiss. I mean, you think about it now, you kind of laugh about those because those bands are kind of, you know, on the goofy side of things, just kind of, dragging it out all these years later but at the time that was a huge deal that was like holy shit man i mean we saw queen there we saw different iterations of the guys from led zeppelin were still around you saw even goofy stuff that you would laugh about now like um billy squire you know at the time okay. it was a huge deal it was like holy shit yeah. man, squire and uh you know just being into all things rock i would go down I mean, we saw you two we saw robert plant um it's unfortunate Tony's here because he's the one that remembers these, Tony is not here because he's the one that remembers these things better than I do. My memory is a little scrambled mixing up all the gigs that we did versus sure. what we've seen. And, um, I would assume that just based on that statement that you and Tony go back pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, he was the last guy in the roids that I met when the, when the original band got together. It was, um, you know, Boomer was the guy that I knew first. I knew him all through high school and, uh, 
Tony was the last. He was the guy that uh, bootleg Bill brought in, and uh, he was like, "I got a no friend who could play bass." We were, you know, without a bass player for a little while, and uh, Tony came along and turned out, uh, you know, he would be the one that I would continue to know through all the years, and uh, he's a good guy. Uh, it's unfortunate he's not here, but um, well, he's got other stuff going on. So. What, what what was it about that group of people that really brought you together to form a band? Um, well, I knew again, I knew Boomer the drummer since we were in junior high school and you know we, he and i were just we played baseball and football and all that stuff we did all the stuff the kids did and uh then in high school we went to concerts together and got in trouble together and you know did all that kind of goofy stuff and then he started talking about because his father who and i don't know if anybody knows this about boomer but boomer's father was a drummer as well ray rock he played drums for the charlie daniels band for a while um, nobody really talked about that at time because Charlie Daniels was kind of like, oh, oh my God, that's like some crazy Southern rock or whatever. But um, he had the background and he had the access to some drums. So at times he would play a little bit of drum. And uh, then I found out that he, uh, on his own, he had met this guy, Bootleg Bill, and they were, you know, they were just having some jams and they would get together wherever they could play and, you know, you know, rock some Black Sabbath or ACDC or whatever. And then, um, one day boomer contacted me and he's like he knew that i had some friends who had places where they might be able to set up and practice he's like can you get us into your buddy ron's efficiency which is like an apartment building behind his house if we could rent that out and ron was like yeah man give me 10 bucks and you guys can have it for a day or whenever you want it but i had to be there to get them in i had the key or whatever and uh, I was just there hanging out, watching them play. And next thing you know, they're like, uh, well, we know, but Bill's like, I know some black flag stuff. And I'm like, oh shit, man, let's uh, give me a mic and, and I'll just do the vocals on the stuff. And we ran through a couple black flag songs, a couple dead Kennedy songs. And then we were like, Hey, let's just do a band. And I was like, shit, I'll do that. Absolutely. I was at that point wanting desperately to learn how to play guitar so being around this guy, bootleg Bill, who was literally the most amazing guitar player, in my opinion, in the history of South Florida punk rock, the guy was amazing. What, what, no matter what you thought of him, otherwise, the dude could play. That's for sure. And nobody would be a better resource to, to learn from at the time, even if he was loath to help me, which is a strange deal. I mean, who would not tell you, you know, stuff. So I, I had to get some information out of him early on to, to learn how to play. But um just the fact that I could sit there and watch him play up close was a huge benefit to me. And uh, from that point, we just started playing. We were, we were doing covers, just kind of having fun. And then uh, we were like, we should start writing tunes. And, you know, Bill had a couple things that he had written and I was easily able to write, uh, you know, goofy vocals over the top of it and, you know, add lyrics. And then we had a little set of songs. We didn't have a bass player. And then that was the point when, uh, Bill was like, well, I'll just get my friend Tony to come down and he could play. And he came down and uh, he was uh, he left-handed and nobody had any money at the time. So um, we had to get Tony a right-handed bass and he would flip it over and play it. <laughs> Eventually he got a left-handed bass, but it was the goofiest thing watching him yeah. play right bass upside down. And there was another guy we played with, this uh, Ricky Royd, who was a, another guy who was also left-handed. He did the same exact thing, which is a, a weird deal. But uh, when Tony came along, that Ricky guy was there for you know maybe two weeks or whatever. When Tony came along, that that felt more permanent, and uh, we just started amassing tunes. And um, you know, because I knew people that were doing stuff similar to that already. Uh, there was a bunch of guys there. 
Um, a dude named Mark Williams, who was like the local center of the punk rock world, was always trying to start a band. And he was, you know, he had friends and they were trying to do stuff. And uh, around the same time that the Roids were getting together, it wasn't even a band. It certainly wasn't the Roids. It was just some guys making music. Um, we were contacting, or I was contacting those guys about, is there a place to play around here? And they're like, oh, we're just going to do parties or whatever. We're going to get a band together. And uh, they kind of got their thing together right as we did. They were the Raging Puss Bags, the earliest iteration of the Raging Puss Bags, which went on. So they moved up to Gainesville and became a thing for a little while. Um, so as far as I can tell, the, the earliest versions of punk rock in West Palm Beach that wasn't that band F, which I'm not sure they were even from West Palm Beach. I mean, I know they would come up and play a little bit, but I think they were more of a Fort Lauderdale thing. I, I didn't know any other punk bands at the time. Yeah, obviously the kids from the Believers were around. About I don't think they had formed anything yet at that point. So all this stuff kind of came up together, and you know this whole thing about the Roids being the first band. I mean, we tell that just because it's convenient or whatever. There was probably somebody else doing something. They just weren't playing gigs or whatever. So yeah, I haven't been able to find anyone else. I do a lot of research, and maybe there, there maybe there was, but in terms of playing gigs, I haven't been able to find any other band that was doing what the Roids were doing at that given time in Palm Beach County. So, what other bands around the South Florida area were you also a fan of at that time? Well, I I loved local music to begin with. I mean, there was a couple bands that were in West Palm Beach. They weren't punk rock. There was a band called uh, Mad Max later went on to be called crazy agnes and they, these guys were my friends and they were but they were doing rock and roll covers you know it wasn't we would never get a gig with those guys simply because of they would look at what we we're doing and say you guys are crazy we're not adding that but they were friends and i loved live rock and there was a band called moses which was the same thing these were older guys my buddy's brother was in that band and that was literally the first time i got to see a local band and i i was my mind was blown that dudes from the neighborhood could put together a band to play and sound really good. Um, and that fed a lot into doing music myself, but this band Moses was really good. So were the Mad Max guys. There's a guy named Tim Mitchell. He goes by the name now allowed now. Um, he's been doing that for 50 plus years or whatever. And uh, he was the guy at school that I would see and be like, that dude's a rock star. And, you know, Nowadays, people are like, oh, Rockstar, that's like, you know, a whole goofy thing. Why would you worship anybody? But when we were kids, it was like, if you played guitar and you were good at it and girls were falling around, you were the shit. That guy, Tim Mitchell, was that. He had some buddies that were, you know, doing other stuff, but those guys weren't playing guitar. So to me, he was the main guy. Um, and we've interviewed him on our podcast, Living Credit, one a couple different times. And he's still into it. And he and I have talked about doing a, uh, either a book or a local documentary on West Palm beach stuff. And, and we had actually started on doing that. And then the whole uh, Donald Trump thing happened. <laughs> and, uh, and you got to be laying on one side of that or another in West Palm beach. Cause there's so many people that are just Fox newsed out. And I lost a lot of friends over that shit because they were just like hardcore MAGA. I'm like, I don't see it. I mean, it's not relevant to your podcast, but I did lose touch with a lot of people that were, doing music stuff over that. So uh, I guess the whole plan to do a documentary or a book or something, even just a long interview about local music, I would have to, you know, reform some of those relationships with people who, sure. you know, on the other side of the coin, as far as that goes. Did you archive a lot of things back then that you still have now? 
there's a lot of photos that I think my mom has, and uh, there's recordings and stuff out there. Um, I know I've got a bunch of cassettes that have yet to be digitized. Hopefully, they still play. <laughs> I don't have even have a cassette player, but um, other people have as well. I know that there's people that have uh, you know got together old stuff and it's there. Um, my mind hasn't been focused on the old stuff so much and trying to create stuff new. You, you just kind of like, you know, time goes by and you're like, oh, I got to revisit that. And it doesn't happen. Sure. Right. But um, it, it's worthy of getting, you know, that stuff together and, and putting it together. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, going back and thinking about the, the first or second show you remember playing with the roids, what memories do you have of that very, very early beginning? Well, earliest times would have been, you know, stuff that happened like house party stuff. And it would have been us and some iteration of that band, the Raging Puss Bags, or the guys that were in that band that were trying to do something else. And uh, I can remember we did a thing at some, my friend John Gilbert's garage. Uh, it was an afternoon gig and a couple different guys from the local scene from Lauderdale came up and they were playing and and we played and I can remember having a really bad sunburn from being out there that day. I beat red sunburn and we went and played and I was like having uh I was having like body chills from being so so sunburnt. And by the time I got home I was throwing up from this shit. It was awful. Jeez. But, uh, so that was the kind of crazy stuff you did then. You just got out and got into it. I also remember at that gig there was some guys from DC that were down. I think they were in that band um shit was was marginal man a dc band they were they were yeah it was guys from that band and i, I forget the one dude's name but there and west palm beach had a little bit of a a place where guys from out of town could go and stay and they had like a kind of open policy for you know people traveling that were on their way down to Miami way and uh there was a place there and uh that was called the hardcore hotel <laughs> And that was a place that we we played a couple times. I don't know believe, believers guys may have brought that up as well, but it was a house that was owned by a school teacher from Twin Lakes High School. And he was an older guy. He's still going. And he just let the kids flop there. And that's where that guy, Mark Williams, lived, who I knew was like kind of the center of the punk world there. And uh, Mark, I'm not sure of his money situation, but he was independently wealthy because his parents had money and they were both killed and he inherited a ton of money as a kid. I think that ultimately led to his demise. I think that, you know, drugs got involved, but he was, he paid for a lot of people to stay there and come through. He bought music gear for friends and stuff like that. He's a super nice guy. You know, he was, he had his own problems and stuff like that. But my memories of Mark were, he was a cool guy and, Probably everything that happened in um, West Palm Beach in the 80s was attached to him somehow. And, you know, I definitely appreciate that of him. You know? I do remember Chad and Tony bringing him up when they were on the podcast really? uh, as well. And one thing I also want to get into and kind of see when this was created was the logo of the Roids, the name, right? Because that's very memorable, I feel like, you know, the the way the name was written. Who was responsible for for creating the design of the Roy's name, and when did that officially get uh, come out? Well, the original name wasn't even um, Roy's. We we didn't think it was called Filth, and uh, we actually made some hand drawn T shirts. And there's still a couple of those around. It was not really so together at that point. But then when we got to where we had like a set of songs and bootleg, it was like that name Filth is terrible. There's somebody else called that already. 
Um, and then I remember just seeing this thing on TV. I don't know if it was Saturday Night Live or that old show Fridays or whatever, but um, they did a skit on there. It was called A Cop with Roids. And uh, it was a little comedy skit. It was the cop who had hemorrhoids and he couldn't get out of his car. It was really funny. And I remember that term, roids, always stuck with me. So the, the whole debate of whether roids was about steroids or hemorrhoids, it was definitely hemorrhoids because that was funny. Everything we did was a joke based on, you know, whatever you get a laugh on. And then that logo, there was one that was like a stick figure logo. And then that uh, magazine it was called Rip Magazine. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a heavy metal magazine at the time. You could get it at 7-Eleven or whatever. It had a very similar logo. And I stole the R off that Rip and then did the roids with, uh, you know, my own lettering on that. And that became the official logo that, you know, lasted right up until the end. So, and I think it, it wasn't like we were trying to keep that a secret. Everybody knew that logo from Rip, Rip Magazine at the time. It was just like a rock and roll look and we wanted that. So, and to be honest, you're the first person that's even asked about that. So <laughs> that information has never been shared. Okay. But the guys in the band knew about that. Wow. All right. Well, it's great that you, that, that story came out here because, uh, it, that logo came out on hats too. And there was a lot of t-shirts and stuff like that. How important was merch for the band? Oh, well, merch was huge. I mean, and we made it all ourselves. We had a uh, screen printing press at my house and we would get together and, you know, get two or three guys and we would screen the print, the hell out of shirts. And we'd do like hundreds of shirts and the first thing we did was just gave them away. We're like, wear this, whatever. And like, so all the local punk kids got one and they were all wearing it, which is like at the time, it, you know, I'm not gonna say it was genius, but it worked for us to get the name out there to just have everybody wearing this stuff all the time. Cause kids were like, Holy shit, the roids. And it was because of those stupid shirts. And these shirts were like the cheapest. I mean, this ink that we would get probably washed out of the shirt after four or five times running through the wash. <laughs> so they didn't survive very long, but um, the, those shirts, we moved a couple hundred of those early on and it was all promotional stuff. And uh, I remember thinking like, Oh, there was some way we could make some money back on this. Cause like, it's costing us 50 bucks to do this. You know, nowadays it sounds like nothing, but at the time it was a big deal when you have no cash and you're throwing your money into that. But as a promotional tool, those shirts were great. The hat didn't come along till later. Tony was behind that. He, he got those done and, uh, those are still around. I still see from time to time people wearing one of those or they'll send me a photo of themselves in one of those hats. And it's like, Oh, cool. Awesome. I have some, I have one somewhere. Yeah. Not many bands I would say had their logo put on hats that were local. Like from what I can remember back in the early Florida days, I don't remember a lot of bands doing that. Florida is such a weird place, man. It's like the stuff that the punk rock kids wore in Florida was not what they were wearing in the rest of the country. If you see, I'm here in Nashville now, and and I keep up with a lot of the old original music from from Nashville from that same era. And those kids were not wearing the shit we were wearing in South Florida. That we had, as you would probably remember, you'd be wearing shorts or you know, sun britches and a cutoff t-shirt or whatever. But these kids here are like what evolved into the whole crust punk thing. There was the earliest version of that. They would look a little bit goth and they had leather jackets and Virgin jackets. Or whatever, and that was, that was their uniform. We had something completely different going on. And I look, when I look back at the old photos of the shows and stuff in Florida, I'm like, man, we were just like beach kids. Very few of the bands. I mean, some of the Miami bands were, you know, keeping up with that look, 
you know, the whole uh, leather and studded denim and all that stuff. But for the most part, man, it, if you're out playing those gigs, you were you didn't want to sweat. So you had like some goofy shorts on and a cutoff T-shirt was usually half sun bleached. So it led to a, <laughs> yeah. a unique look. When you think back to, you know, the scene, right, and you get people who you meet over year over the years, how would you describe what the scene was like back then? Besides the fashion and what people were wearing, what were the attitudes like back then, the crowds? How do how would you describe that to someone that was from the outside of South Florida? Well, I remember the kids in West Palm Beach specifically appeared to be really hungry for something different. Um there was, you know, again, there was local bands that were doing like cover metal stuff like that. And uh, that didn't seem to be of real interest to the kids. I mean, those guys would play clubs or you had to be 21 to get anywhere, anywhere near that age to do that. And uh, if you had a couple punk bands who were either doing, you know, a show in a garage or a show in a house or at, like this place, JTJC, which was a thing up in Jupiter, Florida, that where they booked you know, all ages show and it was just for kids and they booked some gigantic shows there. So that was the, like kind of the center of the world. You get booked on a show at that place and like all the kids, their parents would drop them off at this place. So it really was like, instead of going to the skating rink or whatever, you know, it was like, Oh, well I'm now into punk rock. If you were between the age of 14 and 18, you know, that was kind of the thing to do. And it seemed unique to me in that it wasn't like what was going on elsewhere, maybe in places like California. I don't know. I wasn't out there. But uh, as far as that went, there was no other like heavy metal kids weren't doing that. It was the punk rock kids. And it was like a, a weird form of babysitting for a while, if that makes any sense. And by default, if you were any good at this, the kids would eat it up. So we happened we happened to do that right as that stuff was starting to peak, and by default, because we had a band that was competent, we could play. You know, we got two or three years, I think, being the center of that world. You know, and as things happen, you get replaced. <laughs> so we got replaced, <laughs> and whoever came along after us, they got replaced. And it, sure, the music changes, and uh, but what we were doing happened before the whole. As you know, there was a huge thrash scene, like the metal thrash scene that popped up just following us. And I think the, you know, maybe the believers kids had to go a little toe to toe with that more than we did, but uh, we, we thought we were going to be able to do that for a long time. Next thing you know, everybody's into this version of heavy metal and we were uh, on the outside looking in. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And uh, you know, just North of Palm beach, you have other cities, you know, like Fort Pierce, Vero uh, you have uh Jupiter and what have you. So, you know, the, the, what was it like up that way, you know, North of Palm beach? You know, I know you all played some shows up that way too. So what was it like up there? And was there any difference between playing a show up that way versus maybe playing a show down further South? Yeah, there was some stuff. There was a place at Hope Sound. There was a movie theater. It was booking shows and we played that a few times. That was when we started getting a little bit more into officially booked concerts um but that was still in that same area i forget what that was called but they were doing stuff there and then there was a record store in stewart florida called confusion records that guy that owned that now i believe is in north palm beach he's still alive john clemens yes john clemens yeah and you know i was friends with john for a long time and then uh you know 20 year 25 years falls there's a gap falls in there i reached out to him i'm like 
hey, do you remember me from uh, we did tons of shit? And he was like, I don't know. I have no idea who you are. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Uh, John's John was a guest on the podcast in the first oh, really? year. He was. If you haven't checked out that episode with John Clements, one of my personal favorite episodes, because I don't think John ever did anything like that before. So right. it was quite the episode. Oh, I love John. Man. That's cool that you did that with him. I mean, that the the Stewart version of his record store was probably shouldn't have existed. It was just this little hole in the wall right on the corner or confusion corner. And uh, next to him, there was a weird iteration of like psychotronic video. These guys were renting and selling videos of horror movies and sci-fi movies of, in the VHS age. So I made that a point to stop in at his place all the time. And I remember he had a original seven inch of an old Ramones uh, song. I don't know if it was like Sheena's a punk rocker. He had to hang on his wall. And I'm like, I was desperate to get that from him. And he would never sell it to me. And I'm certain somebody probably stole it. But I remember I would go in there and like task him on some of the records he had, like horrible shit, like Molly Hatchet and stuff like that. And he knew about all that stuff though, man. So it was, uh, it was interesting. And, and I would visit him probably twice a week because I, I drove a truck route up there and I would, drop off flyers for shows or whatever he would let me know what was going on and in, in that area what the kids were up to it was funny and a little bit disappointing when i reached out to him more recently like six months ago and he was like i don't know who you are <laughs> wow and i guess you, know, you get old you forget things you know the, maybe a little bit more nuanced memory of some of the stuff that we had talked about when, when i was up there but sure I'll have to touch base with him and uh, see if I can help jog his memory. Cause uh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes just, uh, just having some chit chat with him, he'll help help refresh him. Oh yeah. Well, he's gotta be up there now, huh? He's probably like late seventies. Yeah. Yeah. He's up there. He's up there for sure. So I interviewed him about three years ago. So, uh, but I've been going, I was, I didn't go to the shop that you were talking about. I was too young to go to that one. I didn't go to his store until he was uh, in the Palm beach area. Okay. So yeah. And that shop's still going right now. It's still it's still going on. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's still going. Uh, and just speaking of record shops, you know, are you into records yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You have any I, interesting Florida records in your collection? I, the only thing that I actually you start moving around, you're like, I'm dragging this pile of records around. Right. So I dumped all my vinyl when I got to Nashville, sold it to a place. Grimy's here, which is, you know, the local. Yeah. Local I've been to Grimy's. Oh, awesome. Um, but I kept all the Florida stuff. So I'm like, if I'm going to keep anything, it's going to be the Florida local stuff. And I got that boxed up in the garage someplace. And that was all that anybody that I knew over saw in South Florida that put out a record. I kept that. And that was stuff like, you know, amazing grace or rugged edge, uh, belching penguin, no fraud, the cichlids, screaming sneakers, all that stuff. So I still have all that. Um, Nice. I haven't cut that box open in a while, but uh, I'll probably be dead and somebody will <laughs> end up with this box. I'm like, what is all this horrible old Florida shit? So somewhere in there, I have. Hopefully, a, it does. Hopefully, it doesn't get in the hands of that person. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're in Nashville, especially if you're in the neighborhood I'm in, they would look at it and go, what's this? I bet. Who wants this? So I just had Dan Destructo on from No Fraud. Did you ever get a chance to see them play back in the day? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love those guys. Actually, of the bands that uh, were going on then, I thought No Fraud and Belching Penguin, that that scene with those guys, or the that was that was the stuff I was really into. I love BP, man. Those guys blew me away every time I saw them. And No Fraud was right there with them. I mean, it was intense, 
over the top, crazy rock. Um, my friend Rob Rampy played with those guys for a little while. And so I got to see them a bunch at the time. Of course, moving away, you lose touch. I know they still do stuff from home time. I would love sure. to see that. But Remember your first year you saw No Fraud? Oh, they would have been in the 87 range. Okay. 87, yeah, yeah, 88. Yeah. Nice. Um, you know, those bands would come down and they, they would get booked on cameo shows. So you see them there or you see them at Summers on the Beach or place like that. My mind scrambled as to who played with whom. Um, but I remember seeing those guys a bunch. They were definitely one of the ones that were like, if they played, I would go see them. It didn't matter who they would open up for or if they were just doing their own show. Them and uh, Stevie Stiletto was one of those bands. And of course, they were from Jacksonville. Um, if they came around, I would definitely not miss them. I'm a big fan of that band too, Stevie Stiletto. Uh, really? and, and, you know, that band and, you know, some of the other bands that you mentioned, you know, a lot of these bands have put out records. They put out either seven inches or tapes or, or, or full length LPs. You know, when the Roids were already together, you're playing shows. How important was it for your band to put out something physical? To me, it was, it was, everything was about that. I wanted to have a document of what we were doing. Unfortunately, at, whatever age 17 18 19 none of us knew how to actually record stuff so we had people around us that were you got to do this you got to do that and uh so when we would go record it seemed like every time we went to do something it came out sounding friggin' terrible it didn't sound like the band that you know would rehearse or play gigs it sounded like some other mishmash of what somebody else's idea of what a band should sound like. I mean, you don't take a band who plays really fast and then drown out the drums and reverb or, you know, that's, that's some different kind of music, but that's what they were doing to us. We actually hired a, a producer who, you know, he was like, he, I gave them this same spiel. I'm like, we're trying to record stuff, but we can't get anything that sounds good. And this guy was a friend of mine who was like in the local, I don't know. He was in rock and stuff, but he was also in like weird jazz stuff. This guy's name is Daryl Dobson. He used to do a Jimi Hendrix tribute thing down in uh, Lauderdale. And he was like, well, I could produce a record for you. Tack on five bucks an hour onto whatever you're doing. I'll get you in the studio and I'll do it. Of course, the guy was like, heard our stuff. And he was like, oh, this is terrible. I can make you sound right. What he was trying to do was trying to make us sound like a jazz band or whatever. <laughs> so th that recording be went on to be the suck it or die recording um where was that recorded at that was recorded at a place called sterling gold studios in fort lauderdale and it was it was one of these like 40 dollars an hour two inch tape you know they had a big studer machine and all that and it was a real place and um that process of recording that probably was the demise of bootleg bill being even being in the band because he no matter what we were doing he was on to the fact that that was bullshit myself and boomer and tony were like let's just get this shit done and see what we have bill was everything was a confrontation with him so he was like fuck you guys fuck the producer dude fuck the studio guys he was making everything that much more difficult so there was a part of that him being like that with the you know recording dudes that was a problem in the finished recording and then there was you know the interpersonal stuff otherwise and he was right about what they were doing he just presented it in, in the wrong way I mean, put sure. everybody on it sounds like though that was kind of like a lead up to maybe it, things boiling over. What else was going on with, within the band that you think kind of got him to that point? Bootleg Bill is a unique character. You know, and again, I haven't talked to the dude in like 25 years personally, but um, he was a dude who he was well aware of his own talent. And like I said earlier, the dude was amazing. 
I didn't. I to this day have not met anybody like plays punk rock guitar that even comes close to that guy. But at the same time, he was like Mister Fuck You to everything. And if you were a friend with him, it didn't matter. He would you know find some way to piss you off or whatever. But he's also a you know redneck. You know, one of these guys who comes up from that area of South Florida where you know people are racist or you know half clan or whatever I'm not saying he is or was but his reputation was a bit of that to begin with um you know we were stupid kids and we're you know we're having a laugh about whatever but as you get older you start realizing like well that's not where I am I'm not gonna you know make that world the center of what I'm doing I want to have a good time playing rock and roll that dude was about some other shit I don't know. So that was started bubbling over a little bit. And he was extremely difficult to work with in that we would book a show and, you know, he didn't drive, he didn't transport his own shit. He didn't do anything. He was like entirely dependent on me or Tony or whoever to come pick him up and take him places. And then someone would have, we'd book a show and then that day would come around and be like, Oh, we're going to come down and pick you up and you get to his house. He'd be like, Hey, I'm not playing that show. Fuck you guys. So that happened a few times, and then I went to those dudes. I'm like, well, you got the dudes. He's got a major problem with his attitude, and he's half a racist, and he's, you know, difficult to play with, and he won't do these shows. I mean, we can't continue what really was. We're just, we couldn't continue having fun with that thing going on. So we made the decision at that point to, to be like, well, as good as he is, as amazing of a player as he is, and how even though he was the guy that carried things musically for a long time early on, we cut him loose at that point and replaced him with somebody else. And uh, that was it for him. Was there ever any physical confrontation or interactions that you all had at that point? No, nah, that we were. I mean, I know people that were super physical. Everything was a fight or a fist fight. Or, and that wasn't us. We were the roids were a bunch of nerds. I mean, it was really was just we wanted to play music. We wanted to have fun. It wasn't about anything else. Sure. No, wasn't really a violent person. Okay. He came that way later. I don't know, but uh, just his attitude was terrible. We couldn't do what we wanted to do. So, and then of course, after that, he goes on to have his own world of, you know, super racist, insanely horrible collection of albums and stuff that he put out that directly affected the Roids because he would be, I'm bootleg Bill from the Roids. Here's my new racist record. And we're like, Oh shit. Now we can't even talk about being in this band because it's associated with this guy who's, you know, using this descriptive element to talk about, you know, the, the roids. And it wasn't that at all. Shit, man. It Between Tony and I and Boomer, man, we were probably some of the most liberal, you know, half hippie types, even though we're doing uh, punk rock stuff. I mean, our attitude for that was not what his was. It sucked. And, and in the years subsequent to that happening, we haven't really been able to talk about the roid much, the roids much, because you know there's that element. You have to you have to explain your relationship with Bootleg Bill. So, you feel like the legacy of the band is is in any way tarnished because of that? I think anybody who would have discovered his stuff probably would have like some bell would go off and say, "Oh yeah, those guys were one of those you know redneck bands of the of the time." And it wasn't like that at all. We had a redneck in the band, but. Um, and then there was a lot of people who didn't pay attention to that at all. You know, and they were just like, oh, the Roids were, you know, kind of a thrashy punk band that, you know, put out a couple records. And, you know, we remember, you know, for being kind of an intense deal. And uh, they don't have that part of it. So 
I, for me, it's it's the center thing of, of anything. When you go back and, and you talk about the roids, like immediately goes to that, and I get a little bit you know pissed off about it. I'm like, sure. why, why couldn't we just remember the band for what it was, which is a good time? Instead, we're talking about this guy who added this you know redneck vibe to the whole thing afterwards, and, right? And, and that's that's a huge reason why when I came to Nashville and I was doing subsequent bands, I'm like, I'm only gonna do like horror band stuff or stuff that can never slip into that vibe. And people can accuse me of being associated with that shit. You can, you'll see a definite line where bootleg bill went and that's the shit he was after. And then the, the rest of us, we did something completely different. And it was not that soon. Sure. I think guys that knew us would attest to that as well, but it's hard to defend. You see the actions of one person. You think everybody was doing that. That wasn't the case. Right. Yeah. I can understand that. And, you know, thinking about the, the Royds music and you mentioned about the cassette that was put out. And then many years later, there was a compilation of Royds tracks that was released. Was there anything else ever put out physically from the band besides the original cassette tape? Um, there was a, a couple demos and stuff. Actually, the very first demo that we did, which was done on like a little Fostex four track, to me that was probably the closest to what the band actually sounded like. Even though it was like the most caveman of recordings, when I when I do get a chance occasionally hear that, I'm like, oh, that was the band. That sounded great. Every time we tried to introduce a studio or somebody else's input would happen in there. It, it started sounding like something else and we could never capture it. So in my mind, I remember, you know, having a rehearsal or playing a gig and thinking, shit, man, this is the most intense band that I could ever imagine being part of. And then you'd record it and you'd be like, what is this bullshit? You know? So unfortunately it's hard to explain to people what was going on. You're like, Oh yeah, you got the album, you got whatever you get an idea of what the songs were, but those were like, really softened up versions of them. So I, you know, I don't even deal in any of those recordings or anything like that. People ask me about it. I'm like, I mostly say, yeah, there's no recordings <laughs> <laughs> to kind of keep the air of it, uh, you know, more of a mystery. Yeah. I think you're talking about that compilation. That was a, a bootleg bill deal. He put that together with some guy that invested in that from, I think the guy was in Italy or Spain or something like that. And th that was the last discussion I ever had with him. I, I was getting ready to move to Nashville and I ran into some place. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm putting out a Royds record. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, it's just going to be some some of the old recordings. and But uh, it's going to be the Royds featuring bootleg Bill. I'm like, that's hilarious. The Royds featuring. Well, he's like, well, he's like, you know, I am the noted celebrity of the band. And, you know, people, they want to, you know, check it out. That's going to help sell this thing. And I remember thinking, well, there was some celebrities in this band. Are you out of your fucking mind? And uh, little did I know the very next step was that he was you know, putting out these crazy records and he was using that bit as a way to elevate, you know, some of his more racy content that came up after that. And that was the beginning of the end for us being able to even talk about the roids. It definitely sucked. So when that compilation came out, was there any, approval from any of the other members about that or did he just go through it and just proceed with it well he had it he had it already going he used that that time when i spoke to him in person as the time to get my authorization or get my stamp of approval but i didn't know at the time what that was or what it was going to be i just thought he was putting out a cd and i'm like oh cool we'll, we'll be on a cd 
And the idea of it being with bootleg, the Roids featuring bootleg, Bill, I didn't like that at all because it was, even though for a long time he was the central musical character, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for everybody else putting in the work. I mean, there was a ton of work and most of it wasn't him. So it should have been the Roids. It should have been a document of what it was. And um, I think he misrepresented a little bit of what his intentions were with that. But whatever. I mean, yeah, I never saw a penny from that. I don't know that even if he did, but um, sure, it's it's not something you would typically see on a, on that sort of record, a punk thrash record. You normally wouldn't see on the cover, you know, featuring and anyone's name really. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, that was ridiculous. That's like, oh, the, the, here's the Clash featuring Joe Strummer. Like, what? I'm not saying we're anywhere on that level. I'm just saying you don't need to talk about that. You know what I mean? Sure. I would say on the positive side, I guess as a as a fan of the music, you know, it was nice to be able to find it somewhere streaming because it's really hard to track down any digital music from the Roids. Uh, is that something that you're looking to perhaps change in the future, or are you fine with how it is? Uh, well, you know that whole, the the bootleg bill element, the whole post band, you know, redneck vibe, has kind of made me want to just kind of a race association with that, you know, I'm willing to like, you know, we're going to do an interview and kind of share my story about it, but it's tough, man. You go back there and there's songs and stuff like that, that in a real, you know, woke era, you can't really promote that stuff. We didn't know anything about that. Then we were just kids talking trash or whatever, you know, we were a bunch of nerds who were like singing songs about getting laid or making fun of people. Well, the year since you, you can't do that shit. And I acknowledge sure. that. So it's kind of hard to even without the rednecky side of, you know, the element that bootleg bill brought, it's still a little bit of a tough sell. And you put out a record called suck it or die at the time where a bunch of kids like, Oh, that's hilarious. Now it's like, Oh shit, you guys are a pro rape. I'm like, wait a second. I didn't even realize that's what that was at the time. So are there any roids tracks that perhaps you had a hand in writing that you do look back more fondly on? Oh yeah. All this shit like we're the roids or, sick of it and stuff that had like a more punk flavor i i was the one that wrote those lyrics uh and i wrote in most of the the lyrics but bootleg bill would come to me with i've written a song and this is the title of the song and those would be the ones that were the always the more offensive ones I'm like okay i can handle that i can you know put together with you know we were appeasing his you know gift of being able to write music and you know with whatever the hell he wanted to call it or whatever and to his credit, Tony Royd was the one who even then was like, that's bullshit. We shouldn't be doing these songs with those lyrics or whatever. And I was just like, ah, who cares? You know, we're just having fun. A couple of years later, I'm like, holy shit, Tony was right. We should not have done that. And I'll give Tony his due. He was the first one to uh, recognize that. And you know, I don't know if Boomer ever paid any attention to it at all. But I don't even know if he ever recognized that he was in the band a couple of years after. But uh, Oh, wow. Boomer was a character. He and I were good friends for a long time and uh, right up to the time that he died. But uh, when he was done with something, he was done with it. So I'm not, I'm not having a nostalgia moment here. Let's go do something. Sure. Else. Before Boomer passed away, what, what was your relationship with him? Like, Oh, uh, well, Boomer used to with whatever band project I was in would kind of follow me around. He would be out of the picture. Five years would go by and then he would turn up and then he would be the drummer for five years and then he would quit and then disappear again for five years. And that happened with the band that I was in after the Roids called uh, the mighty shrill. And then for, he was the drummer for the creeping cruds here in Nashville for a long time. And uh, 
he's a great drummer. I mean, he had the best meter of any drummer I ever played with. He was not technically crazy. He was not like the, you know, over the top Rob Rampy type or whatever. He was definitely someone who played a beat. But if you were writing a song and you wanted to be right the first time, he always had that. He just kind of lost interest in um, being tied down to practice or having to travel for a gig or whatever. He was like, I'm not into that shit. So we had to slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. And then you deal with him at practices and stuff. And he'd be like, are we done yet? I'm like, we just got here. Well, we were remembering him in one of our podcasts. And uh, Jimmy, the Crud's bass player, was like, man, he's like, that guy was the most miserable curmudgeon ever. He would just be like, bring you down. But everybody loved him. So he was a great drummer. So it was just weird kind of, you know, two sides to this dude. Because you knew him so long, did he slowly become that way over time, or was he always a little like that? In the beginning, he wasn't. In the beginning, he was the one who was, like I said, he brought me into music. And he he had a famous quote. He said, I will sleep on park benches and eat crackers to play music. And I always remember that. I'm like, this guy's hardcore. You know, that was before I was even considering being in music. And uh, we did the stuff with the Royds for a little bit. He had hitting some weird girlfriend problems or whatever. And you know, life got him down a little bit and he lost interest in that. Then he became the cranky old guy at the band who, who would just be like, you're like, Hey man, can we do a practice? We're only going to use like two hours of your time or whatever. And it was, it became a running joke to, you know, get a couple hours on a boomer and then leave him alone, you know, let him have a week or so to on his own. And the very last gig that we were supposed to play with him, we knew that he was moving away. This was 2014, maybe, 2013. He had booked the last show that we were going to do. It was up in Cincinnati at some horror convention. And uh, like five days before the show, he slipped and fell on some ice and busted his shoulder or something like that. And he called me. He was like, I can't play that show. And I can remember thinking, man, this is this is the time that look, this will be the last time we ever do anything. Is there any way we can make this happen with Boomer? And I could just tell he was done. He's like, Nope, I'm out. I'm leaving. He's gonna. He was moving up to Kentucky to do uh, work up there, moving with some girl. And to his credit, that you know that was a good move for him. She was probably the nicest, most well-rounded person in his life up to the very end. But uh, it was just it was a weird moment that I finally felt like, holy shit, this guy's done, and he's out. I haven't. I've never felt that way with Tony. I always felt like Tony at some point, you know, whether we're you know, 75 years old, he'll turn up, you know, and we'll play, do something, but it fucking boomer. That was, that was a hard hit. Definitely. Yeah. I can imagine. Did you guys ever have any moments? I know you said you were you know, trying to distance yourself a bit from the band, but did you have any moments you can remember where you did kind of share some memories, maybe some of your favorite places that you played, maybe some of the favorite other bands that you all were playing with. Did you ever share any of those moments together? Oh, well, we talk, we'd have a laugh about some of the crazy shit that happened any time we got together. I mean, some of the stuff like, you know, playing with Gigi Allen or whatever. I mean, that entire deal is something you kind of check with other people and you're like, did that shit really happen? Or was that something I made up in my memory? And, uh, you know, they confirmed that, yeah, that's how that went down. What was that like? Oh, that was, as you probably remember, Gigi Allen was like a larger than life figure for a little while. And, we got booked on that show and and that was in the period when he was promising that he, at some point he's going to kill himself and he's going to kill everybody with him. And we're like, is this the show that this dude killed everybody and we're part of this? 
So we get booked with him in up in Ebor City. And I'm thinking this was 87 or 88. And Bootleg Bill was the biggest Gigi Allen fan on the planet. So he was just beside himself. He was over the moon. I'm like, we're going to play with Gigi Allen. And at the time, the, the big deal was that Gigi put out a thing saying that no band that's opening up for me will play a show with me and do one of my songs because everybody's scared of me. So what what do our dumbasses do? We're like, okay, we're going to pick a Gigi Allen song and play it and see what the fuck happens. And, and in the in light of the fact that Gigi is also going to kill himself on stage, he's probably going to kill everybody in the room, and let's just inflame that. So we picked a song, and uh, you know we get there that afternoon, and at that point I'm like, I'm having second thoughts about doing the song. And I guess Tony and Bill or Tony and, Bo- and uh, Boomer are both like, yeah, maybe this isn't a great idea. Cause we had just seen Gigi walk in and you're like, Oh, this guy's fucking terrifying. And this was when it was the Jesus Christ, like crazy looking Gigi hadn't shaved his head or any of that stuff yet. And his band was out there. We talked to them, those guys a little bit. I think it was, they were called the disappointments and they were talking about how, uh, yeah, all the rumors about him are true. Don't fall asleep around this guy. He will do some crazy shit to you that you will regret for the rest of your life. And, and we were like, holy shit, are, are we doing the right thing by challenging him with this damn doing this song? So as we're loading in, I had this big yellow van. It was our you know tour van or whatever. And the rest of the band is inside watching something or whatever. And uh, I was out there moving shit in the van. And then it was on the side of the the road where the venue was and I'm standing in the van with the van door open and somebody hits the car, hits the van and I fall on my ass. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, who the fuck runs into the van while I'm out here? You know, it's a parked van. I walk out and it's fucking Gigi Allen driving a station wagon. And he apparently run off to Walgreens so he could get some, uh, X lax. So he could shit on stage that night. And, uh, he ran into the van and I had already been like, what the fuck yelling at whoever? And I'm like, then it dawned on me. It was Gigi Allen. I'm like, maybe I should reconsider this whole thing. I don't want to get killed by this dude before the show even starts. Cause again, he was an intimidating looking motherfucker. But the thing was, when we got in there, we went in and it was like time to play. Gigi is like stationed right next to the stage. He's like signing things and selling shit. And uh, I'm looking at bootleg bill. I'm like, are we really doing this fucking song? He's like, fuck, yeah, we are. I'm like, all right. So we were like, oh, the next song we're doing is a song called Stink Finger Clit. It's a Gigi Allen cover. And we'd like to invite Gigi up on stage to sing it with us. And I fucking look over at Gigi and he's sitting there and he doesn't say a word. He's like, oh, yeah, you guys have at it. So it was like this huge buildup to thinking this guy's going to bum run, the, bum rush the stage and stab somebody or whatever. And he was just like too timid to even get up or say a bad thing about it. And then I think after we were done playing that, he was like, I, you're the only guys that have ever done that. So it was kind of like, it was softened up and, you know, anticlimactic, but we did it. We got to say we did that. And that whole story about bands not doing his songs was kind of dried up after that. Then of course he went on to play and all the shit that you heard about him, you know, the biting chunks out of his skin, taking the shit on stage and throwing it on everybody. That shit really happened. And that show's documented. There's there's videos of that. The Ebor City 87, 88 show. I remember specifically his band, The Disappointments, played their own set between us and them. And then we had like a 10-minute period where we could rush up and grab our gear 
from the side of the stage because we knew shit was going to fly and we didn't want shit to get all of our gear. So we're like, we'll rush up in there and get that stuff and bring it out to the van. But we grabbed our stuff, brought it down to the van. And before we could go back in to get the rest of the stuff, the show had started and there was a bum rush of people coming out the front door and people were covered in shit. It was fucking most surreal thing that you could be like, I remember a guy in a big banana yellow shirt running out, like going like, fuck this. And he had shit stains like from head to toe. And I'm like, thank God I wasn't not inside that thing. Wow. This being in the Tampa area, all the dudes from uh, like nasty savage and sabotage and all like the big metal band, all those dudes were there. And they were like, those dudes were, standing in the back fearful of this shit i mean i don't know if you remember like nasty ronnie he was like a big wrestler dude you know and uh he was in the back like fuck that shit and uh it was pretty wild but and there's other stuff in that story that i probably forgotten but uh <laughs> I, I the guy that booked the show reached out to me like within the last year i'd forgotten that this dude even existed and he was begging me for photographs and stuff like that because we had met up with a dude there that was with a local newspaper who had taken photos of everything, and uh, I just lost the contact for it. So, and he was reminding me of all the shit that happened that night as well. I'm like, man, that was, that was an infamous show. And apparently, Gigi came back a year or two later and did the same thing again. So that time, I stayed home. <laughs> I don't blame you. Would you say out of all the shows the Roids had played? That is the most infamous of them all, or is there, is there one that tops that? That's probably the most infamous. You know, we played with the mentors um, in West Palm Beach as well. As, musically, I preferred the mentor show, and we got to meet those dudes, and they were such hams. They ended up staying at our buddy's house for like a week, and I got to know El Duce and all those dudes pretty well. And uh, that was my preferred story, just hanging out with the mentors because they were just funny goofs or whatever. But I think more importantly for like, if you're going to ever remember anything about what the Roids did, it would probably be that, that GG Allen show. That would be the one that, that stands out the most. And the other thing that I would bring up, and I don't know if anybody, are, you're doing all of Florida, right? Right. Okay. Has anybody ever brought up uh, WMTL, the local radio station there? WMTL. It's not ringing any bells. Well, WMTL was an exclusive to West Palm Beach and it lasted about five years. There's a guy named Rattlehead, and he ran a pirate radio station there. And uh, he would play all the local band stuff. I mean, whatever we gave him, he would play. And that was a huge promotional tool for us. And he would let me come down and run the radio. On Friday night, You that's what you did. you drive around and listen to this pirate radio station. He would play metal bands. He'd play local punk bands, play whatever. I mean, if you had it on recording, he would let you play it. And uh, – it was a big deal. All the kids in town knew of this. And on Friday nights, that was what people paid attention to. It was really cool. And that dude himself, uh, Rattlehead, Dan Cleveland, it would probably be a pretty good interview because he has a little bit of insight in that stuff. Yeah. If you could ever get him to do it, I could never get him to, <laughs> to do our show. But I can't, I can't remember anything more fun outside of actually playing than being part of that radio station thing. Cause we, we had so many gags and, you know, we'd get on that. We'd get on the radio and, talk, you know, trash talk our buddies and stuff like that. It was, a, it was a great time, but it also got the music out there. You could go on and you could play your whole record. You could play it a couple times or whatever. And then the next time you play the show, all these kids had heard it and they're asking for the recording and stuff like that. So did you squeeze in a Roy song here and there? Oh, we played it continually, continually. And then there was that band rape tape, which was coming up a little bit behind us. Uh, I think they made a little bit more use of it than we did. 
and they ended up, you know, eventually kind of replacing us in like the, the popularity echelon. Um, they were directly behind us, and, and they also used that. And uh, so it, it covered that the period of like the beginning of the roids through the rape tape era, and then after that, that's when the radio station kind of fell apart. But that was a good time. Uh, a couple of other last questions before we start to wrap things up here, Gino. We talked about South Florida. Kind of talked a little bit about the Treasure Coast side of Florida. You mentioned Ebor, the Gigi Allen show. Where else in Florida do you remember playing besides those parts of the state? I think the only place that we didn't play might have been Tallahassee. We covered the state otherwise. I don't know that the Roids ever went out of state. Maybe we went to Georgia. I'm not entirely sure. A lot of it is a mishmash with other bands and stuff like that. But we definitely played Jacksonville. We played with... Um, a band that Stevie Stiletto had that was his post Stevie Stiletto band up there. We definitely played Orlando and Tampa and all over Miami, Coral Gables, all that, and Lauderdale all the time. What was it like playing up in Gainesville? Oh, Gainesville was great. That that was up uh, of the out of town upper state stuff. That was probably the best you know, built in audience that knew us there. Um, and a lot of our friends uh, from other bands or whatever, they would live in West Palm for a while, live in Gainesville for a while. So we, we would go there and play and they would have a built-in thing. And we would always end up uh, having a good show there. We actually played, this is probably interesting to note that, that we played at this place called Brandywine, which Brandywine was an apartment complex in Gainesville. It also happened to be one of the uh, locations where the Gainesville slasher had killed somebody. Like When we were there, this shit was going on. People in Gainesville were terrified that this guy was going to pop up and kill somebody. And they found a one or two people that had been decapitated and their bodies had been rearranged. They were gutted and blood was everywhere. And we're, we're, we show up and we're playing this show in the same damn uh, complex there. We played in the, the, the social room. I can't, I don't know if the, we play with the doldrums or we play with somebody local there. And, uh, Everybody was on about this killer. They're like, this could be your last show because the killer's going to show up and, you know, cut your head off while you're sleeping tonight. And I remember everybody being like terrified to go back to their rooms or whatever. Like, oh, you guys want to shack up in one room? Because naturally this guy was going to come and kill everybody. It was pretty wild. They found the guy not long after that. But it was weird being kind of like in the middle of this, um, you know, ser serial killer frenzy at the time in Gainesville. And the wow. gig that we played at that place was one of the most over the top. And so pe people got like really wild. They were tearing chairs that were anchored to the floor out and throwing them out the window and stuff. And I can remember thinking, holy shit, man, this is pure chaos. You guys in Gainesville definitely know how to party. Was, <laughs> was that was that during the Royd set or was that just throughout the entire show? That was, well, there was us and I think it was a doldrums or bus bags, but it was both bands. That night, that shit was going on. I think people just got really drunk and rowdy, and they didn't respect that it was like a in development that they were destroying. So they were like, let's throw some chairs out the window and go crazy. We had a buddy that came with us, got real drunk, and he was trying to start fights with people. And so that was part of it as well. And uh, wow. But that was a wild time. Yeah. Sure sounds like downtown it. Downtown Gainesville as well. We played at that, uh, what was it, the Hardback? Is that what that place was called? More than likely. Yeah. That was a good venue. You would always on a Friday or Saturday night you'd play that thing. You would have people there just obviously because of the university. Good times for sure. And as you were traveling through the state, 
Did you and the other guys have some favorite places you would stop at, just like, you know, roadside type stuff that you would always try to make it a point to stop somewhere? Well, if we were in Gainesville, we would go to Skeeter's Big Biscuits. <laughs> I'm sure at some point you would have seen a giant yellow sticker on somebody's car that said, I eat at Skeeter's Big Biscuits. So that was that was the after gig uh, food place there. And um, there was a place in, it was in Indian Town. I think it was in Indian Town. You would go and it was just a little diner. But if you asked them to, they would hit this switch on the wall and these thousands of tarantulas that were on strings would flop down from the ceiling. And they used that to scare people, scare the shit out of people. The first time I saw it, I didn't know it was coming. And uh, that was really cool. I love that place. But then you had all your, you know, you know, record stores and, you know, hip video shops and stuff like that that you would try to hit as well. I was always about trying to find the, the record stores. And I imagine, you know, you being into horror stuff, right? And, you know, that's a whole nother topic in itself. But were you were you big into horror at that time too, or did that come a little later for you? Always been into horror. Always. There's some, there's some Roid stuff that's horror-based as well. That Three on a Meat Hook is a horror song. And come with a couple of the other things. We had a song called More Gore, which was a dedicated to gore movies and stuff like that. I mean, that's really what we play music and sit around watching horror movies. It was the era of... Uh, the first era of VHS where horror was finally being reintroduced, shit that you'd heard of your entire life, you could finally see it. And, you know, of course, Herschel Gordon Lewis was a South Florida entity, and uh, we were able to track that stuff, and we watched that stuff over and over and over and over. Had a great time with that. Were the other Roids guys also into horror as you were? Bill was. Bootleg Bill was. Tony, probably not as much. He was. <clears throat> he loved the music side of things, and he was way into you know, some of the the punk rock shit that was happening at the time. He probably went to more shows outside of playing than I did at that point. Um, Boomer was like into sports and stuff, which was strange. <laughs> you catch him, he'd be watching golf or bowling. I'm like, really? <laughs> bowling? But yeah, whatever your thing is, man, go for it. <laughs> and this could be a tough question, but thinking about all the horror movies you've seen over the course of your lifetime, What's the one or two movies you feel like you've seen the most? Oh, well, that's an easy one because I see uh, Night of the Living Dead every Halloween. We run that outside on a thing, um, a big screen that we have. And I run a uh, a nightly show on this a platform called Cast where we run movies. We have friends come and watch it with us. And we chat and do that. And some of those movies are that we've shown them hundreds of times and stuff. So it, I would say the, the big three would be the evil dead night of the living dead and texas chainsaw obviously and the same three that probably everybody says but uh i don't live too far here from where they filmed the evil dead so um gone out to the cabin a few times and reclaim stuff from the old site there and so that by default that's probably my favorite of all those although night of the living dead is a great flick so is texas chainsaw i love all the old hammer shit all the old universal movies i mean very few of those I can find, you know, that I just can't watch. So I would strongly agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll do that. I would watch shit every day, every day and watch something. So nice. I'll have to send you a thing for our uh, nightly thing if you ever want to check it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's so great to know you're still, you know, doing your thing. And just quickly mention something about that as well, because you haven't really stopped, right? You've been pretty much still making music uh, way past the roids period. You know, you've been pretty active. So talk about what you're up to these days musically. Well, I'm still in the band, the Creeping Cruds, which 
at the time when we did the roids, you know, a four or five year stint was probably felt like a haul. But I've been doing the creeping threads since 2002 now. So we're at 21 years. Um, one of the other guys is also original member. And then the other two guys are pretty much long haulers as well. Um, and we're finally, after a long period of like not putting anything else, I went through a period where my ears completely would not allow me to get around recording stuff. Because as happens, if you play music your entire life, you're going to have tinnitus problems. You're going to have deafness problems. I got all that shit. But I got to a point where we could go in and record. We're, we're going to a place called uh, Welcome to 1979 Studios, downtown Nashville. And we're putting out the Creeping Creds record that we've always wanted to put out. And uh, actually, tomorrow I go to track the, the final bit of my guitar stuff. So um, when that's done, I suspect that all these years later, we'll fi finally have the, you know, pentultimate fucking awesome recording. That's what I hope anyway. Never seems to work out otherwise, but this one, sure. from what, I, what I've been hearing, sounds like that. So nice, and it's it's not so far from the Roids musically that it's a huge departure. It's fast rock and roll, you know. Horror theme is the, the center element of that. Um, everybody's capable musician, otherwise, and um, definitely none of that stuff would happen had it not been for the Roids. So. And, uh, and I'll be honest, it, it's weird when you talk about success with being in a band. And I don't know if anybody else puts it this way, but I've never been in a band that really actually the band never made any money. There's It's negative. You lose money playing in a band. But there's not a thing that I've done since I started in the Roids that wasn't somehow touched by being in music. Music got me the jobs that I had. Music has got the job that I have now. Music is the reason I came to Nashville all the connections that I have, all my friends were through music. So being in a band to an extent is by far the most successful thing I ever chose to do because if I had, I not done that, who knows what I would have been up to, but you know, I'm able to live off of the things that I did that were affected by being in music. I you know got a decent job and I'm able to live off that. I wouldn't know my wife now, if it wasn't for that thing, I wouldn't have any of the stuff that I have now or, have done any of the things, you know, and, and she constantly reminds me, she's like, you know, some of the stories that you tell are crazy. Nobody lives that life. And I'm like, well, to me, it's just like a, a regular series of events, but I guess, you know, if you're not in a band, you don't live that life. So it's weird. But all of that stuff was because I did the roids and that triggered event after event since then, if I hadn't done the roids thing, I would have been dead. Who knows? Well, we're glad you did the roids thing and you're yeah. here. <laughs> Oh, I appreciate that, man. <laughs> it's been wonderful getting a chance to have you on and to tell the story of the roids and to be able to look back on that period of your life and to think back on those moments, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, they happened and it's nice to hear from you and getting a chance to share some of that with us. So as we kind of get ready to close things out, I mean, that was a great closing right there, but, uh, are there any other final thoughts you wanted to share to uh, supporters of the Roids, people that go way back, who may have even saw you guys way back when and is listening to this interview or someone that maybe discovered the band later uh, who really enjoyed the music? Anything to the supporters out there? Any last words? I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. You know, after talking to you, it's probably worth it to dig up some of those old early recordings and put out that at least the one thing that I thought really was the Roid sound that would be good to have out there. Well, I'll try, I'll get a hold of that stuff. And, um, 
try to make that available. The, the, the little compilation that I, I know there's one that somebody has out there. Um, it's like a half and half of the bootleg Bill era versus the era with the, the dude Burt that played guitar after that. So the weird, real weird mishmash, that's not a great representation of what the Roids were about. I would think, if anything, keep your eyes open. I'll try to put out some stuff. Unfortunately, we, what we were going to do, this is a plan that we had 10 years ago, that uh, Boomer and Tony and I were going to re-record all the Roid stuff, all the relevant stuff, none of the crazy stuff. But uh, And we were going to put out an, an album then, and that's right when the damn ear problems I had kicked in and then uh, following that, the Boomer decided he was done. So we never got to revisit putting out some Roid stuff. I wish we'd have done that because with that, we would have had an actual, you know, recording that would have been representative of what we, you know, what we're doing then. So that's unfortunate, but I'll dig up what I have, try to put it out there. And uh, anybody has any questions about the roids or whatever, creeping dreads or whatever, you know, reach out to me. I'm on all the social media things and I'll talk to anybody. You know, it's not even a, an issue. If I have time, I'm more than happy to discuss rock and roll or horror movies or whatever, man. It's all good. Thank you. 